0: Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane (laughs) Planeta. You're in the right place if you want to create an inspired life. And you do so by working on your own personal development. And today I just want to show you quickly Odie before I got going on the next chapter of my Psych 100 class. He is my sidekick. He is my little, little, little lovey lovey. Yeah, he's a cute little puppy dog, he's a Yorkie Shih Tzu, and he keeps me going, he keeps me inspired, he keeps me busy, and he keeps me walking, and that is an important part of our journey, so we can stay healthy for the next generation, so we can inspire the next generation, so we can show them an example by doing, right? So let's get started on the next chapter, the last chapter in week eight from Psych 100's university class at Queens. I think you're going to like this one. It's judgment and decision making, chapter 47 in this journey. So humans are not perfect decision makers. Not only are we not perfect, but we depart from perfection or rationality in systematic and predictable ways. The understanding of these systematic and predictable departures is core to the field of judgment and decision-making. By understanding these limitations, we can also identify strategies for making better and more effective decisions. The learning objectives to keep in the back of your mind, especially if you are listening to this on the podcast, is to understand the systematic biases that affect our judgment and decision-making. Develop strategies for making better decisions. And experience some of the biases through sample decisions. As mentioned before, I am a student, not a teacher. I am simply enjoying sharing my learning experience with the world wherever you are. So let's get started. Introduction. Every day you have the opportunity to make countless decisions. Should you eat dessert, cheat on a test, or attend a sports event with your friends? If you reflect on your own history of choices, you will realize that they vary in quality. Some are rational and some are not. This module provides an overview of decision making and includes discussion of many of the common biases involved in this process. In his Nobel Prize winning work, psychologist Herbert Simon argued that our decisions are bounded in their rationality. According to the abounded rationality framework, human beings try to make rational decisions such as weighing the costs and benefits of a choice, but our cognitive limitations prevent us from being fully rational. Time and cost constraints limit the quantity and quality of the information that is available to us. Moreover, we only retain a relatively small amount of information in our usable memory and limitations on intelligence and perception constraints, the ability of even very bright decision makers to accurately make the best choice based on the information that is available. About 15 years after the publication of Simon's seminal work, Tversky came and Kahneman produced their own Nobel Prize-winning research, which provided critical information about specific systematic and predictable biases or mistakes that influence judgment. The work of Simon Taritsky came and paved the way to our modern understanding of judgment and decision-making, and their two Nobel Prizes signal the broad acceptance of the field of behavioral decision research as a mature area of intellectual study. What would a rational decision look like? Imagine that during your senior year in college, you apply to a number of doctoral programs, law schools, or business schools, or another set of programs in whatever field most interests you. The good news is that you receive many acceptance letters. So, how should you decide where to go? Baserman and Moore in 2013 outlined the following six steps that you should take to make a rational decision. Number one, define the problem, i.e. selecting the right graduate program. Two, identifying the criteria necessary to judge the multiple options, for example, location, prestige, faculty, etc. cetera. Three, weigh the criteria, rank them in terms of importance to you. Four, generate alternatives, the schools that admitted you. Five, rate each alternative on each criterion. Rate each school on each criteria that you identified, and six, compute the optimal decision. Acting rationally would require that you follow these six steps in a fully rational manner. I strongly advise people to think through important decisions such as this in a manner similar to this process. Unfortunately, we often don't. Many of us rely on our intuitions far more than we should, (laughs) and when we do try to think systematically, the way we enter data into such formal decision-making process is often biased. Fortunately, psychologists have learned a great deal about the biases that affect our thinking. This knowledge about the systematic and predictable mistakes that even the best and the brightest make can help you identify flaws in your thought processes and reach better decisions biases in our decision process. Simon's concept of bounded rationality taught us that judgment deviates from rationality, but it did not tell us how judgment is biased. Tversky and Kamen's 1974 research helped to diagnose the specific systematic directional biases that affect human judgment. These biases are created by the tendency to short-circuit a rational decision process by relying on a number of simplifying strategies or rules of thumb known as heretics. Heretics allow us to cope with complex environments surrounding our decisions. Unfortunately, they also lead to systematic and predictable biases. To highlight some of these biases, please enter the following three quiz items. (laughs) This is going to be fun. Problem one. Listed below are 10 uncertain quantities. Do not look up any of the information on these items. For each, write down your best estimate of the quantity. Next, put a lower and upper bound around your estimate such that you are 98% confident that your range surrounds the actual quantity respond to each of these items, even if you admit to knowing very little bit about these quantities. Number one, the first year the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded. Number two, the date the French celebrate Bastille Day. Number three, the distance from the earth to the moon. Number four, the height of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. number five, number of students attending Oxford University as of 2014. Number six, number of people have traveled to space as of 2013. Number seven, 2012 to 2013 annual budget for the University of Pennsylvania. Number eight, average life expectancy in Bangladesh as of 2012. Number nine, world record for pull-ups in a 24-hour period. And number 10, number of colleges and universities in the Boston metropolitan area. Problem number two, we know that executive fraud occurs and that it has been associated with many recent financial scandals. And we know that many cases of management fraud go undetected even when annual audits are performed. Do you think that the incidence of significant executive-level management fraud is more than 10 in 1,000 firms, that is, 1%, audited by Big Four accounting firms? A, yes, more than 10 in 1,000 Big Four clients have significant Executive level management fraud or B, no fewer than 10 in 1,000 big four clients have significant executive level management fraud. What is your estimate of the number of big four clients per 1,000 that have significant executive level management fraud? So they say to fill in the blank below with the appropriate number of your best guess. So, blank in 1,000 big four clients have significant executive level. Management fraud. Problem three. Imagine that the United States is preparing for the outbreak of an unusual avian disease that is expected to kill 600 people. Two alternative programs to combat the disease have been proposed. Assume that the exact scientific estimates of the consequences of the programs are as follows. One, Program A. If Program A is adopted, 200 people will be saved. Or two, program B. If program B is adopted, there is a one-third probability that 600 people will be saved and two-thirds probability that no people will be saved. Which of the two programs would you favor? Next, overconfidence. On the first problem, if you set your ranges so that you were justifiably 98% confident you should expect that approximately 9.8 or 9 to 10 of your ranges would include the actual value. So let's look at the correct answers. Number one is 1901, the first year the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded. Next, the date of the French celebrate the Bastille Day is the 14th of July. 384,403 kilometers, that is the distance from the earth to the moon. Next is the height of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which is 183 feet or 56.67 meters. 22,384 as of 2014 is the number of students attending Oxford University. Number of people who have traveled to space as of 2013 was 536 people. 6.007 billion, that was the annual budget for the University of Pennsylvania. Average life expectancy in Bangladesh is 70.3 years in 2012. One, the world record for pull-ups in a 24-hour period. And finally, the number of colleges and universities in the Boston metropolitan area, a whopping 52. Count the number of your 98% ranges that you actually surrounded the two true quantities. If you surrounded 9 to 10, you are appropriately confident in your judgments. But most readers surround only between 3. 30%, 30%, and 7%, 70% of the correct answers, despite claiming 98% confidence that each range would surround the true value. As this problem shows, humans tend to be overconfident in their judgments. Anchoring. Regarding the second problem, people vary a great deal in their final assessment of the level of executive level management fraud, but most think uh, 10 out of 1,000 is too low. When I run this exercise in class, half the students respond to the question that I asked you to answer. The other half receive a similar problem, but instead are asked whether the correct answer is higher or lower than 200, rather than 10. Most people think that 200 is too high, but again, most people claim that this anchor does not affect their final estimate. Yet, on average, people who are presented with a question that focuses on the number 10 out of 1,000 give answers that are about one-half the size of the estimates of those facing questions that use the Anchor 200. When we are making decisions, any initial anchor that we face is likely to influence our judgments, even if the anchor is arbitrary. That is, we inefficiently adjust our judgments away from the anchor. Framing Turning to problem three, most people choose program A, which saves 200 lives for sure, over program B. But again, if I was in front of a classroom, only half of my students would receive this problem. The other half would receive the same setup, with the following options. One, program C. If program C is adopted, 400 people will die. Two, program D. If program D is adopted, there's a one-third probability that no one will die and two-thirds probability that 600 people would die. Which of the two programs would you favor? Oh my gosh, see how this is changed in its context? Okay, careful review of the two versions of this problem clarifies that they are objectively the same. Saving 200 people, program A, meaning losing 400 people, program C. And program B and D are also objectively identical. Yet, in one of the most famous problems in judgment and decision-making, most individuals choose program A in the first set and program D in the second set. People respond very differently to saving versus losing lives, even when the difference is based just on the framing of the choices. The problem that I asked you to respond to was framed in terms of saving lives and implied reference point was the worst outcome for 600 deaths. Most of us, when we make decisions that concern gains, are risk-adverse. As consequence, we lock in the possibility of saving 200 lives for sure. In the alternative version, the problem is framed in terms of losses. Now, the implicit reference point is the best outcome of no deaths due to the avian disease. And in this case, most people are risk-seeking when making decisions regarding losses. These are just a three of many biases that affect even the smartest among us. Other research shows that we are biased in favor of information that is easy for our minds to retrieve, are insensitive to the importance of base rates and sample size when we are making inferences, assume that random events will always look random, search for information that confirms our expectations, even when disconfirming information would be more informative, claim a prior knowledge that didn't exist due to the hindsight bias and are subject to a host of other effects that continue to be developed in the literature. Contemporary developments. Bounded rationality served as the integrating concept of the field of behavioral decision research for 40 years. Then in 2000, Thaler suggested that decision making is bounded in two ways, not precisely captured by the concept of a bounded rationality. First, he argued that our willpower is bounded and that, as a consequence, we give greater weight to present concerns than to future concerns. Our immediate motivations are often inconsistent with our long-term interests in a variety of ways, such as the common failure to save adequately for retirement or the difficulty many people have staying on a diet. Second, Thaler suggested that our self-interest is abounded such that we care about the outcomes of others. Sometimes we are positively value the outcomes of others, giving them more of a commodity than is necessary out of a desire to be fair, for example. And in unfortunate contexts, we sometimes are willing to forego our own benefits out of a desire to harm others. My colleagues and I have recently added two other important bounds to the list. Chug, Bainel, and Baserman in 2005 and Bangel and Basker in 2000 introduced the concept of bounded ethicality, which refers to the notion that our ethics are limited in ways we are not even aware of ourselves. Second, Chug and Baserman in 2007 developed the concept of bounded awareness to refer to the broad array of focusing failures that affect our judgment specifically the many ways in which we fail to notice obvious and important information that is available to us. A final development is the application of judgment and decision-making research to the areas of behavioral economics, behavioral finance, and behavioral marketing, among others. In each case, these fields have been transformed by applying and extending research from the judgment and decision-making literature. Fixing our decisions. Ample evidence documents that even smart people are routinely impaired by biases. Early research demonstrated, unfortunately, that awareness of these problems does little to reduce bias. The good news is that more recent research documents interventions that do help us overcome our faulty thinking. One critical path to fixing our biases provided in Stanovich and Weiss' 2000 distinction between System 1 and System 2 decision-making. System 1 processing is our intuitive system, which is typically fast, automatic, effortless, implicit, and emotional. System 2 refers to decision-making that is slower, conscious, effortful, explicit, and logical. The six logical steps of decision-making outlined earlier described as System 2 process. Clearly, a complete System 2 process is not required for every decision we make. In most situations, our System 1 thinking is quite sufficient. It would be impractical, for example, to logically reason through every choice we make while shopping for groceries. But preferably, System 2 logic should influence our most important decisions. Nonetheless, we use our System 1 processes for most decisions in life, relying on it even when making important decisions. The key to reducing the effects of bias and improving our decisions is to transition from trusting our intuitive system one thinking toward engaging more in deliberative system two thought. Unfortunately, the busier and more rushed people are, the more they have on their minds and the more they are likely to rely on system one thinking. The frantic pace of professional life suggests that executives often rely on system one thinking. Fortunately, it is possible to identify conditions where we rely on intuition at our peril and substitute more deliberative thought. One fascinating example of this substitution comes from journalist Michael Lewis in 2003 gave an account on how Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, improved the outcomes of the failing baseball team after recognizing that the intuition of baseball Executives was limited and systematically biased, and that their intuitions had been incorporated into important decisions in ways that created enormous mistakes. Lewis documents that baseball professionals tend to overgeneralize from their personal experiences, be overly influenced by players' very recent performances, and Overweigh what they see with their own eyes, despite the fact that players' multi-year records provide a far better data. By substituting valid predictors of future performance, system two thinking, the athletics were able to outperform expectations given their very limited payroll. Another important direction for improving decisions comes from Thaler and Sustine's 2008 book, Nudge Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Rather than setting out to de bias human judgment, Thaler and Sustine outline a strategy for how decision architects can change environments in ways that account for human bias and trigger better decisions as a result. For example, Bashir's Choi, Leibson, and Madarin in 2008 have shown that simple changes to defaults can dramatically improve people's decisions. They tackle the failure of many people to save for retirement and show that a simple change can significantly influence enrollment in retirement programs. In most companies, when you start your job, you need to proactively sign up to join the company's retirement savings plan. Many people take years before getting around to doing so. When instead companies automatically enroll their employees in a retirement program and give them the opportunity to opt out, the net enrollment rate rises significantly. By changing defaults, we can counteract the human tendency to live with. The status quo. Similarly, Johnson and Goldstein's 2003 cross European organ donation study reveals that countries that have opt in organ donation policies, where the default is not to harvest people's organs without their prior consent, sacrifice thousands of lives in comparison to opt out policies, where the default is to harvest organs. The United States and too many other countries require that citizens opt in to organ donation through a proactive effort. As a consequence, consent rates range between 4.25% and 44% across these countries. In contrast, changing the decision architecture to an opt-out policy improves consent rates to 85.9% to 99.9%. Designing the donation system with knowledge of the power of defaults can dramatically change donation rates without changing the options available to citizens. In contrast, a more intuitive strategy, such as the one in place in the United States, inspires defaults that result in many unnecessary deaths. Concluding thoughts. Our days are filled with decisions ranging from the small, what should I wear today, to the important, should we get married? Many have real-world consequences on our health, finances, and relationships. Simon Kahneman and Tversky created a field that highlights the surprising and predictable deficiencies of the human mind when making decisions. As we understand more about our own biases and thinking shortcomings, we can begin to take them into account or to avoid them. Only now have we reached the frontier of using this knowledge To help people make better decisions. Well, that was a fascinating chapter. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, the simplicity of how we make decisions really comes to fruition in those examples towards the end on whether you should donate an organ or not. Just by the wording of opting in or opting out. And speaking of which, if you like the show, share it with somebody you know and maybe hit that subscribe button. We all are in this together. And we're learning so much, and we are moving forward through this course because we want to help one another succeed. And we want to help one another live a more inspired life.